Who can say where the killer roams? When the blood flows, it's slaying time. Slay away. Slay away. Slay away. E.L. King, and on this episode, we'll be discussing John Carpenter's Halloween horror classic, Halloween, first released on October 25th, 1978. So the year is 1963. The night is Halloween. Police are called to 43 Lampkin Lane in Haddonfield, Illinois, only to discover that 15-year-old Judith Myers has been stabbed to death by her six-year-old brother, Michael. After being institutionalized for 15 years... Myers breaks out on the night before Halloween, October 30th, 1978. No one knows or wants to find out what will happen on October 31st, besides Myers' psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis. He knows that Michael is going back home to Haddonfield, but by the time the town realizes it, it will be too late for some of the teenagers of the town. Halloween night. A small American town. 15 years ago. I've got content creators and horror fans, Games with Death and Ashlina, gathered around the campfire, ready to chat horror with me today. Death, can you please tell everyone who you are and what your role is in the horror community? Hi, my name is Death. I go by Games with Death on Twitch, 
TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube, and I'm a content creator and gamer, uh, and I focus on the horror genre, and I mainly stream a game called Hunt Showdown. Ashlina is with us for the third time, and you can also hear us chat about another iconic film that takes place over Halloween, Ginger Snaps. So, uh, Ashlina, introduce yourself and tell everyone your role within the horror community. Hi, uh, my name is Ashlina. I am a content creator on Twitch. Um, you can find me on Twitch literally playing any game ever, honestly. Um, I would consider myself a little bit of a Halloween queen. Um, I love Halloween. Um, I love the movie Halloween. This is actually my favorite movie. Um, I love to talk horror movies. I love the horror community. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's me in a nutshell. Come find me on Twitch. Come hang out, play some video games. And yeah, let's let's talk horror movies. I love it. So Death, how did you discover your love of horror? Tell us the story. What's your origin story? Before you died. Before before I died, uh, I, I there was not a lot of horror movies back when I died 4.5 billion years ago. But I will say that... Um, We'll call we'll call this other person. We'll call him producer. I guess we'll call that person producer, and we'll just say that he was a uh, uh, a kid growing up in the eighties and uh, had a had a family or a, a father specifically who was had a very loose interpretation of R rated horror movies. Uh, so what that meant is that you know as six uh, as one of five children uh, that was forced into the basement to watch horror movies endlessly during the 80s and watching all of the original stuff on VCRs that were rented from from the uh the video store back then uh yeah it's just it just became like the family thing to do and it was terrifying <laughs> it was terrifying for for someone who's like you know all, all these kids who are under the age of 10 uh to watch this but it kind of just became this like family dynamic of watching horror movies together and huddling together out of some kind of like you know probably lasting psychological damage that was done but you know it was the 80s so you know mistakes were made but uh no i've always i've always loved the horror genre i love the the fear of it and the way it the way it permeates everything and it's just uh yeah yeah i i i've watched them for years and i gravitate towards uh horror games and i mainly do those kind of things so or i mainly uh uh stream pretty much all horror games fancy that me too that's that's what i like to do um but i okay so in, we're talking about video stores right and um i don't know if anyone else has watched that documentary on like the last blockbuster what was the video store if you can remember where you're at and do you remember what the first horror film that you saw was oh i there was a horror movie that i watched and i remember it was being like especially terrifying and i and this was like this was like like the like literally like 1984 83 and pretty much like seven-year-old kid and i you know you just remember going into these horror stores uh or into these stores where they used to actually like hand out free popcorn and they would you know there would be vhs tapes everywhere and it was it was the the idealized like retro wave stuff that you see today which was crazy and you didn't appreciate it back then of course and um it was it was it was great it was you i remember i particularly remember one horror movie and i can't remember the name of it but it was like this bug guy that was coming out of a head and it was so gory and gross and i just remember all of my brothers and sisters just being terrified of it and then 
my I was looking away and I remember just my father egging me on and being like, look at it, look at it, just look, it'll be fine. Just, just look at it. Like it was just kind of like this, like, like impromptu, like test of manhood, I guess, you know, cause it was the eighties and all this kind of stuff. So it was terrifying, but it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was great. Well, I would have mentioned the fly, but I don't think that came out until 1986. So, I, I but I mean, the there is like the whole Brundle fly scenario with the creature coming out full on out of his body. Um, well, <laughs> I'll go back to Ashlina. Can you talk a little bit about how you discovered your love of horror? I really wasn't exposed to it as much. Um, my exposure came from a friend that lived in my neighborhood. Um, her mother loved horror movies and um, kept the house decorated for Halloween all year. So that was kind of like my exposure to it. So, of course, like I was constantly going over there every single day um, to watch horror movies after school. Um, but I will add on to um, kind of like the the video rental places. You know, I just remember going to Blockbuster and that was like the forbidden. Like, I can't go over there and even like look at the movies. Um, and I remember standing in line and you could get a bucket of popcorn your candy of choice and then of course like the popcorn to pop to put in the bucket um and I just I miss that so much but yeah no my friend down the road her her mother she let us watch whatever we want um sorry mom and dad and um kept the house decorated for Halloween all year and I was like I can do this this is I, this is a thing like I don't I don't have to take my decor down after Halloween's over it was amazing your introduction to the dark side <laughs> right right absolutely oh, the best the best side the <laughs> we, best we side. all live there now right um, right <laughs> well uh Ashlina, why do you love halloween 1978 why is this your favorite film besides it being the turning point i feel like i mean there was a lot of horror movies before this too like let's be serious but i'm saying like i feel like it was a really good turning point in the horror genre but how it made me feel as a woman um i i really that final girl feeling um that is the first time that i really felt like familiar with it because um you know jamie lee curtis i saw myself in her character and i resonated with her and just to see her being able to fight back and be a badass and like survive like that made me feel like so powerful so besides it being just like a turning point i really resonated with laurie and i just i loved that feeling i really 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 loved that feeling all right death tell me why you love halloween the film and the holiday and the, the holiday is incredible because it's the one day of the year where a lot of us get to just be normal which is really cool for me halloween is this it's just doing so much with so little right like even as i'm like was prepping for this finding out things about the movie that i didn't know i didn't know it had a three hundred thousand dollar budget and that was it you would assume it had more but it's just it's this minimalist distillation of just like terror right like there's this guy and all he's got is overalls and a mask and he's got a knife and he just terrorizes and the way that carpenter puts it together is just so like I, I I really think it's just like 
this was like probably the most artistic moment that I think I've ever seen him have, like even outside of the thing or something like that. This was done on done with like virtually nothing. And it 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 pretty much is like the best. I, I think, in my opinion, it's the best slasher film ever created. I don't think that you could. I, I think that maybe, you know, maybe the first Nightmare on Elm Street approaches it. But, you know, I, I, I still don't think so. I think it was just it smashes so much. And it does so much that um, it just the, the fear and the terror that it instills is really uh, something that I, I haven't seen in a lot of other movies. I don't you don't see uh, I think that just the the one thing for me that that really scared the, the crap out of me was that like pretty much every horror movie up to this point, or at least in my mind, took place at night. Right. Like there was the nighttime stuff. But, you know, this whole like stalking stuff just took place all during the day and it was like the most scary thing for me was just he just standing there looking at them in the plane of day and then that was like okay you can't get away from this you can't turn the lights on you can't wait for the sun to come up you really 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 have to uh just deal with it and it, that's why it's so scary to me that's why i really liked it it feels so real right like you they made it super realistic. I love that you first. I like two things that you pointed out: the the budget and just how they used. They got so much out of so little. And then I love what you're saying about this whole like, you know, in the daytime thing because I'll I'll take it from a woman's point of view. Of course, it's the reality of the situation that if someone wants to hurt you, they are going to do it no matter what. And that to me is freaking terrifying so absolutely that aspect that you just pointed out right there yes yeah i think like i think like one of the things that i i was and i just i just rewatched the movie i just sat down before we before we even came on and just rewatched the movie it's like it's like you're as the audience even as like okay i'm a guy like i'm obviously not a not a, a a female so it's like you know you i can't understand that i'll probably never understand that you know i'm like a six foot three dude that's pretty big and like i don't think anybody would mess with me but the movie conveys that kind of anxiety but it also conveys like there's there's a desperation that comes with the audience because you know the danger the audience knows the dangers out there right and these i think this the scariest scene for me is not is not like the end with all the kills and stuff it's it's the walk home from school yeah that that's the one that's the scary one because they're so oblivious to what's going on they're so vulnerable that he's there he's right there all this stuff it just smashes everything like it's just this idyllic walk where they're like okay you know talking about boys or whatever and all this kind of stuff talking about homework and going home and what they're doing for halloween what time tonight I don't know yet. I have to get out of taking my little brother trick Saving or treat. Saving treats for Bob. Funny. See ya. Bye. Bye. Oh, look. Look where? Behind the bush. I don't see anything. Can you drop by so fast that when you yelled at? Settle, isn't he? Hey, creep. Laurie, dear. He wants to take you out tonight. 
standing right there. You as the audience are just helpless. You can't do anything. And the girls are just completely helpless. And if there's anything approaching to making you feel like that, it's definitely that scene. Um, and I uh, and I thought that that was I thought that was I thought that was like that's that's scary to me. That's min that's like it's like a very minimalist horror kind of approach, right? Like you're making something that is so normal, and you're making something that is so. Um, obvious uh and it's just terrifying and it makes you question you know your own your own actual reality which yeah is really and your cool. own safety yeah like how safe am i yeah <laughs> you know absolutely <laughs> like, the, the, like the and the one part where you're where you're you're like you know like i have sisters and stuff and it's like you know like the, she charges behind the bush to like confront michael myers that jamie lee well, the other girl jamie lee curtis just saw michael myers and then the other girl charges behind the bush to like confront him and you're like what are you doing? Why would you do that? Like, just get out of there, right? Like, it's just, right. it's, it's really good. It's really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just had me thinking about that scene when the girls are together walking home after school, and Lori sort of has this uneasy feeling already because of when she was in class and looked out the window, right, um, and saw Michael, uh, or the shape as he was known in this mm -hmm. film. Uh, in front of his car, just like staring at her from out the window. And um, it was interesting because I know that the car passes by and uh, Annie comments, she thinks it's someone she recognizes from school. And uh, Lori says she doesn't think so, but Annie like starts to heckle him and stuff. And it, it just heightens Lori's anxiety also in that moment. Um, so death, what you pointed out about the, the, the anxiety in those scenes is definitely apparent and, and it's definitely there. Yeah, Carpenter's really good at building that kind of tension. I think that he does that throughout the whole thing. Like the, the really the whole thing is just it's just one long stalk until the end when, you know, there's the final final like we all know what's going to happen kind of thing. Um but the I think the only other movie that I've ever seen that I think did that just as effectively was It Follows. You I'm sure you guys have seen it. That I think that was one of the most scariest. Like that that broke rules too. That broke rules in a lot of ways that I think definitely were inspired, inspired by Halloween, right? Like the, 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 I like not only not even identifying where, where the, 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 uh, the attacker is or like doing it in daylight or like, this is not supposed to happen here. There's just so much that Halloween did in that first that I think has a lot of influence on a lot of other things. And it's just the simplicity of it. It's just this, the pure distillation of like evil, even like the way he's built in the credits, right? It's not Michael Myers. It's the shape. Right, like how much more how much more minimalist can you get, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I that's 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 definitely why it's one of my it's one of my uh, my absolute favorite horror movie of all time. So, Halloween is a nineteen seventy eight American slasher film that we all know and love. The original draft of the screenplay was actually titled "The Babysitter Murders," and at one point it was also called "The Night He Came Home." Now, I do think that if we had stuck with that title that uh, the series would not have ended um, where it is now. It would have ended right there, like Carpenter had intended, right? Because he didn't intend to have sequels. <laughs> but um, John Carpenter directed the film, which stars Donald Pleasance as Dr. Samuel Loomis, Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, and Nick Castle as The Shape, who is, um, that's how he's known in the 
the first film, and then it isn't until the second sequel that he becomes known in the credits as Michael Myers. Okay, so I have an interesting factoid for you. Um, I had read that although John Carpenter had originally wanted either Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee to play Dr. Sam Loomis, which would have been amazing, he was really thrilled to get Donald Pleasance to play the part because he was a big fan. And Pleasance, he was probably the most experienced person on the film. And uh, Carpenter was really intimidated when they met for the first time. And apparently Pleasance um, had started to say, I don't know why I'm in this movie and I don't know who my character is. The only reason I'm doing this movie is because I have alimony to pay and my daughter in England is in a rock and roll group. And she said that the music that you did for Assault on Precinct 13 from, of course, 1976 is cool, <laughs> which I thought that that was just really um, cute and funny, honestly. So uh, fun fact I wanted to ask you, too, is did you know that John Carpenter had actually considered the hiring of Jamie Lee Curtis for the role of Laurie Strode as like the ultimate tribute to Alfred Hitchcock, who had given her mother, Janet Lee, you know, legendary status in Psycho that came out in 1960. And it sort of sort of comes full circle because this film um, in part is inspired by Psycho. I did. <laughs> uh well, I mean, I guess like not all the details, but I mean, I knew I knew that I saw an interview. Um, I think it was Eli Roth's. Um, oh, my gosh. I forget the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sh they had Jamie Lee Curtis on there and she spoke a little bit about, you know, her mother and how, you know, this was such an iconic moment for her because you know at that time her mother was known as like this scream queen for obvious reasons but in my opinion and from my perspective the closet scene in Halloween reminds me a lot of the shower scene in Psycho so um I think because I watched that episode you know Eli Roth's History of Horror um I had some sort of a clue but I think that's really freaking dope yeah, I just really like how it all comes full circle. And Death actually, I know I poke and prod you about this a lot, but you can watch Eli Roth's History of Horror on AMC Plus <laughs> if you go that route to get your Shutter I, subscription. You send me a lot of a lot of recommendations and uh, keep them coming. <laughs> I'm fine with it. I'm absolutely fine with it. <laughs> I will be watching a lot. And I just signed up for Shutter right now. So okay. Let's yeah, go. let's go. Um, just another subscription <laughs> for my addiction. Thank you very much. I'm sure I'm sure Mrs. Death will be very happy that we have another subscription. Well, you can watch together. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the film also stars Nancy Keys as Annie Brackett, PJ Souls as Linda Vanderclock. Did you ever know her last name? I didn't. Um, Charles Cyphers as Sheriff Lee Brackett, Kyle Richards as Lindsay Wallace. Brian Adams as Tommy Doyle, John Michael Graham as Bob Sims, and Nancy Stevens as Marion Chambers. So quite a few of those actors come back in the most recent installment, Halloween Kills, and um, we can definitely talk about that someday when we get to that sequel <laughs> down the line. But um, Halloween is really widely regarded as a horror film classic and as one of the most influential horror films of its era as death mentioned um halloween was produced on a budget of three hundred thousand, and it grossed 
over 47 million at the box office in the United States, um, and it's equivalent to over 150 million as of 2008. I think initially after that first year, at some point it got to 70 million. So it became one of the most profitable independent films of its time. And many critics credit the film as the first in a long line of slasher films inspired by Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. The movie originated many cliches found in low-budget horror films of the 1980s and 1990s. However, the film contains very little graphic violence and gore, which I think is actually one of the reasons that I like it so much. I'm very anti-gore for the sake of gore. Um, but I think that uh, it's it, there's like really barely any blood in that film, even. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the only time I think you see blood is when Lori. Well, no, there's a few kills, but I think Lori just gets slashed in the arm. That's it, and it's like almost like comical, comical special effects that happen, and it's so. But it's it it just absolutely comes together and works, which is a testament to the film. If you think about it this way too, let's let's think about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how you never see Leatherface put the people on the hooks, but your mind like completes the sentence for you. I know we, t- we you know we talk about that. So I almost feel like it's even better in that respect because you are having to put the pieces together right. and like you know your mind is kind of like racing through those scenes because it's like, oh my gosh, like when she falls down the stairs, like, oh my God, that would hurt me so bad. Like, oh my gosh, what would I do in this moment? What would I do in this moment? You know, I feel like they really made you feel like you were a part of it, you know? So that actually harkens back to Psycho as well because that's a Mm. tactic that Hitchcock used in the shower scene with Janet Leigh, um, which was for the audience to really complete in their minds what happened and how gory and graphic that was when actually um, you don't see any of the penetration of the knife in the shower you see something that looks like blood um running down onto the ground but that's all you see you don't actually see anything graphic in that scene i think it's genius i think it's genius i mean your mind is having to complete that and your mind uh is a pretty dark place at times and uh, your imagination can run super wild with that so i think that's the best like fear tactic i guess you i guess we could call it that so yeah it also has the benefit of being very cheap right so <laughs> 300,000 dollar budget and i think right. donald donald Pleasian got i think he got $20,000 for something like 18 minutes it was 18 minutes of total screen time just uh like double what freddy krueger is in a nightmare on elm street yeah yeah he ended up he ended up getting like yeah getting most like a lot of the money and then you have to pay the other ones and i think even jamie lee curtis ended up buying her own uh wardrobe for the film which was kind of interesting interesting yeah so it's 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 yeah it it it, it i i but i but i think that it works better to make people do it themselves because then they people are people are more tended to I guess this speaks to like psychology a little bit, but they're more, they tend more to think worse of things than the things they may be shown, you know? So to, and to do that into your own head is, is a lot more effective as a, uh, as a storytelling mechanic. 
Well, let's talk a little about the backstory and reception of the film. So upon its initial release, Halloween performed well with little advertising. It mostly relied on word of mouth. But many critics seemed uninterested or dismissive of the film, including Pauline Kael, who wrote a really scathing review in The New Yorker, suggesting that Carpenter doesn't seem to have had any life outside of the movies. One can trace almost every idea on the screen to directors such as Hitchcock and Brian De Palma and to Val Luton Productions and claiming that maybe when a horror film is stripped of everything but dumb scariness, when it isn't a shame to revive the stalest device of the genre, the escape lunatic, it satisfies part of the audience in a more basic childish way than sophisticated horror pictures do. And I got to say, Pauline, you couldn't have been more wrong. You couldn't have been more wrong because years after its debut, you know, Halloween among critics even was yeah, considered one of the best five. films of 1978. Okay. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I know I'm a critic myself. So I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, sometimes there's a film and I'm like, this one's, it's just really not working for me. That doesn't mean it's not going to work for everyone, but usually I don't write anything too scathing. I've done one scathing review one time and I felt really dirty about it. Yeah. We know, we know critics like, I guess outside of your perspective, uh do not particularly enjoy the horror genre we know that for a fact um and honestly that review like whatever okay sure um but you know i thought it was absolutely fantastic and i think at that time horror was seen as like like sexual like a lot of you know like exploitative right right so of course they're gonna go they're not gonna enjoy it because that's their automatic like perception going in to see the movie so but anyway yeah I was just gonna make a point that like critics have never really liked horror anyway so I mean and the horror community's like yeah we're not gonna listen to them we're gonna go see it anyways because like we know that going into it so yeah there's definitely like a what is this? This is like post-sexual revolution kind of, well, sort of still in it, I guess. It's 1978. So this is still in that period and in that time. And it's probably in that narrative. I probably, it'd be, it's, it's hard. I, like just to defend the critic a little bit, you know, it's could be hard to, you know, assess this because we kind of are out of that time. Right. Like, I mean, we've had a little bit of time to like retrospect and I'm sure like a lot of the ideas have moved on and, and how they how people think about it and how people actually like address those kind of things is is different nowadays. So it's it's we're a little bit removed from where the immediacy of that review came from. Um, but I will say, like, you know, a lot of the time reviewers, unfortunately, have not I don't want to say agendas, but they also have like a narrative that is building up that that the rest of the audience might not see. Uh, or appreciate because you know it's kind of like this it's kind of like if i'm somebody who say oh i don't know plays a video game for four thousand hours and then meet somebody who's like i love that game and i'm sent back and i all all i want to do is yell at them as everything that is wrong with the game you know sometimes and like you just have to kind of like remove yourself and go you know like a new experience or a new thing is completely different than what somebody would see and i think that it's interesting if there's there are videos that which is really cool of audience reaction to the final scene on uh on youtube if you go and google it if you go and search for it you can find it and they're incredible because what we normally think of like as being at a movie is kind of different as to what 
what you experience in these videos, people like were like straight up like women shrieking, yelling, saying like screaming at the characters on the screen to get out. Like some of these like really, really, it, 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 I guess somebody brought in a, um, a a camera to film the film the audience watching the movie, and it's just great. I, I would highly recommend finding it. Yeah, because I think that's that's as close as you're going to get to like an audience review uh, than you would today, right? So true, true, true. Well, Loomis's description of young Michael was inspired by John Carpenter's experience with a real life mental patient who uh, stared at him with a look of evil and he said it terrified him. So he said that Michael Myers was the real life name of the head of the now dissolved British company Miracle Films. Um, Myers originally distributed John Carpenter's previous film, Assault on Precinct 13, in England in 1977. Pretty much everybody, every character in this film is named after somebody (laughs) that Carpenter knew. Um, And I think, what is it? Lori Strode is actually like the name of a, a, a one of his ex-girlfriends or something like that. But um, a common characterization of Michael Myers is that he is pure evil. And John Carpenter has described the character as almost a supernatural force, a force of nature, an evil force that's loose, um, a force that is unkillable. I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left, no reason no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. So a question that I have for both of you is, you know, how would you characterize um the film's central villain the shape okay number one we don't know much about we don't know anything like i'll say this we know his name we know where he came from we know what he did like we've never heard michael talk we've never heard him have uh like the only way that he expresses himself is through kind of his acts right so like like there is the one scene where the tombstone was dug up and brought into the bedroom. And then, you know, he does the murder of the, of the, uh, the, the one, the first, the first girl that he kills and he puts her on the bed. And then it's like, he's reenacting his sister's death in, or his sister's murder that he committed. So it's like, that's like, and like, then he puts the sheet on himself and he has like the glasses. So there's some kind of like personality there, but you never really get like, there's not a human personality. The only things are are you see are his cruelty and his malice, and that's it. And it's it is like Michael Myers is just this blank slate, in the sense that he is he is just distilled evil. He is just pure evil. There's no reasoning with him. There's not there's no really desires that he wants that are earthly, you know, like that are human, right? So he's this he's he's inhuman in that sense, and it makes him terrifying. Um, he, it's one of the scariest things about, about the whole, the, the character and the whole, the actual, the actual way that the whole thing works, um, is that he doesn't, um, like there's, there's nothing in him and he doesn't die like a human, right? He never dies. The man gets shot. He gets stabbed. He gets burned. He gets hit by vehicles and he just never dies. And, it, and it's, 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 the, that is terrifying. That is terrifying because I, I still can't think of anything that, that would destroy him. 
short of like maybe a nuclear bomb from outer space or something like that. But, you know. So it's interesting that you say that because um, in an interview with BBC, and I think Carpenter has said this multiple times, um, we had this idea of Michael Myers being not quite a human, but almost a supernatural force. And he said that evil as a force of nature in the personification of this man. And I could definitely see that. I, I think this is kind of like a cool perspective to come from as well. When you hear the shape, what shape are you going to? You know what I mean? Like every single person is going to think of a different shape. So their perspective of Michael is going to be their perspective alone you know and what is that is it more terrifying is it more evil is it more demonic you know like everyone has this idea of Michael when we say the shape I I just think that's a really cool kind of like perspective but you literally hammer right on the nail just like everything you said I absolutely agree with it's just like this walking evilness and I think it also makes it scary in a way where it's like kind of how the world is and how there's evil in our world and in our existence and in our lives and like sometimes it just doesn't die and that sucks and it hurts and it feels awful and I think it just adds that realistic element of like can evil really ever die and that's scary that's scary it's it yeah completely and I think like I think like you're right like the shape is like it's almost like a rorschach test for evil right like you think the shape like what shape it's i i don't think of a circle i think a circle is nice right i think of a triangle i don't know why i think triangles are evil maybe they're maybe they're evil they probably are but it's it's like it's left it that's that that's another thing that's left up to the viewer right like i mean it's the minimalist kind of like we're not going to show you the knife going in but you're going to plunge it in yourself and you're going to make up what the shape is is that you're that you're afraid of I think that the direct, I think that the, when they were writing, they were talking about Sam Hain, um, like traditions and stuff like that, and like sacrificial, like harvest traditions and stuff, which are, which are very scary in the sense that, um, like, do you ever remember, do you ever remember the, there was a short, there's a short film about it too. It was called like The Lottery. Do you remember that? It was a short story, and I think it was like a, it was, there was a short film about it, but it was, it, it was, it's, uh, Shirley Jackson, who wrote the uh, the Haunting of yeah. Hill House, actually. So wrote it's the like lottery. there's a banal, and I don't want to bring in like I don't want to bring in. Um, oh my god, I'm forgetting the philosopher's name. Anyways, but <laughs> there's like there's like a normalness to the evil, right? Like it's not even descript, it's not even flamboyant, it's not even like this aberration. It's just there's just this normalness to the evil, which is the most scariest thing, and it's scary because it kind of like you know. You look at a lot of American society these days and you look at a lot of a lot of places where it's like normal people do some very, very horrible, horrible things. And that, you know, that's that's what's terrifying. It's like, where does the evil come from? It doesn't even come from the idea that we control everything around us because we do. We control our environment. We control nature. We control uh, pretty much everything. But we can never really control that thing that can still hurt us that's just still around even though we have all this technology and all this security and all this uh ways to defend ourselves we, we still can't control that because that is just pretty much everywhere and if like myers can be that 
then can't another guy be that right it's that's that's scary that's scary that's getting to the heart of it well talking a little bit about the concept um carpenter was asked by erwin yablons to direct the film um and originally he just said i want you to direct a film about a psychotic killer that stalked babysitters and um you know he wanted it to have the same impact that the exorcist had had on the horror genre and um so carpenter agreed to do the film and to be paid ten thousand dollars for his work which included writing the script directing and scoring the film um and carpenter and then girlfriend deborah hill began drafting the story originally uh as we said before titled the babysitter murders um so it's interesting because director bob clark um he had said in an interview for Icons of Fright that was released in 2005 that Carpenter had asked him for ideas for a sequel to his 1974 film Black Christmas which was written by Roy Moore so um, that feature had an unseen uh, motiveless killer murdering students at a university in a sorority house so the influence of that film on Halloween is really obvious when you look at the different frames of Halloween. But Clark also stated in a 2009 documentary called Clark World um, that was filmed before his fatal car crash in 2007 that Carpenter had directly asked him about his thoughts on developing this um, anonymous slasher in Black Christmas. So that would, be, would have been the character of Billy in that film. Um, to kind of help him conceptualize like Michael and, and how that would work. But uh, Clark also said that, um, and this is, I'm just quoting him here. He said, I did a film about three years later um, and started a film with John Carpenter at the time. And it was his first film for Warner Brothers. Um, and this uh, Warner Brothers had like picked up Black Christmas. And he asked me if I was ever going to do a sequel to that film. And I said, no. And um, I was through with horror. I didn't come into the business to just do horror. And he said, um, well, what would you do if you did a sequel to Black Christmas? And um, he said that um, he would have it be the next year and the guy would have like been caught. He would have been like escaped from a mental institution and he would have gone back to the house where it had all started and he would call the film Halloween. <laughs> so the truth is, um, apparently, that John Carpenter did not copy Black Christmas. Um, this is what Bob Clark said, that he wrote the script, he directed the script, he did the casting. Halloween is, is his movie, and besides, um, the script came to him titled that way, right? So um, he liked Black Christmas and may have been influenced by it, but in no way did John Carpenter copy the idea 15 other people at the time had thought of doing a movie called Halloween, but the script came to John with that title on it. So I thought that was interesting. So technically the script did not come to him with the title Halloween on it, but um, a lot of people often will compare like frame for frame Halloween and Black Christmas and the influences there. So it's inter interesting to hear Clark talk about it and just say that, you know, carpenter had come to him for some advice um apparently to deborah hill's recollection in an interview with fangoria the script took about three weeks to write and much of the inspiration behind the plot came from celtic traditions of halloween such as the festival of samhain like death mentioned so although samhain is not mentioned in the plot of the first film hill asserted that the idea was that you couldn't kill evil and that was how we came about the story 
We went to the old idea of Samhain that Halloween was the night where all the souls are let out to wreak havoc on the living and then came up with the story about the most evil kid who ever lived. And when John came up with this fable of a town with a dark secret of someone who once lived there, and now that evil has come back, that's what made Halloween work. So Hill wrote most of the female character dialogue, and Carpenter drafted Loomis's speeches on the soullessness of Michael. And that's actually, I think, one of my favorite monologues in the film. So um, we've talked about uh, some of the inspirations and plot for the film, but what I want to talk about is the film's score. So um, Carpenter has said that his biggest influences as a composer were Ennio uh, Morricone's uh, work, and um, that composer actually did work with him for the score on his later film, The Thing, from 1982. And then Bernard Herrmann, who's best known for his score for Psycho, which is, as we know, a film that inspired Halloween. So um, just as a fun fact, uh, John Carpenter composed that score for Halloween in four days. I, he had like the best 30 days of his life back in 1978 or something like that. Like they made the movie in 20 days. It was what, what was the other thing about uh, 10 days to write the script and three days or four days to make the score. That's that's insane. Like just the spill of creativity. Like imagine how good that must have felt. But yeah, the da, 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 da. I mean, come on. That's that's pretty epic. That's pretty freaking epic. That's my ringtone that's <laughs> that's right. actually my morning alarm is oh, right. the halloween thing it's iconic <laughs> it's that's awesome <laughs> i wake up to it every day like you know you exact you know exactly what it is too and it's not complicated like the, there's another thing right like it's, it's just simple it's just simple and it's to the point and it's like you hear that instantly and you're like yeah i get it i understand what i'm watching and i understand what i'm about to see I literally get chills every time I listen to the score and just that opening credit scene from the film absolutely does it for me. Let's step into a segment that we like to call Creep Me Out, where we explore the true events and lore that inspired the film. We've talked about some of it already, but I'm going to talk about it some more. So uh, Nicholas Rogers had elaborated and said that Myers is depicted as a mythic, elusive boogeyman, one of superhuman strength who cannot be killed by bullets, stab wounds, or fire. And this comes up when um, Tommy is being bullied, and they're like, the boogeyman's going to get you, the boogeyman's going to get you. And then he falls over on the pumpkin and everything, right? And I almost felt like that whole thing with crushing the pumpkin was like, breaking pumpkins on halloween it's like a bad luck or something like that but kids do it all the time so i don't know it's all bad omen to be honest with you but um uh halloween and halloween kills makeup designer christopher nelson had also said this about the shape and it's interesting because it goes back to what death and ashlina were saying earlier that he's really a blank canvas so to speak he's a blank screen that you project onto what your fears are or what you think he is or what you think he looks like under that mask or the motivation behind you know why he's doing what he's doing um and all that good stuff so i thought that was really interesting because you really just hit like ashlina said before hit the nail on the head there so um in devising the backstory for the film's villain carpenter drew on haunted house folklore that exists in many small american communities most small towns have a kind of haunted house story of one kind or another he had stated 
And um, at least that's what teenagers believe. There's always a house down the lane that somebody was killed in or that somebody went crazy in. And Carpenter's inspiration for the evil that Michael embodied came from a visit that he had taken during college to a psychiatric institution in Kentucky. Um, there he had visited a ward with his psychology classmates where the most seriously mentally ill patients were held. And among those patients was an adolescent boy who possessed this blank evil stare. At least that's how Carpenter recollects it. And um, Carpenter's experience inspired the characterization that Loomis gives of Michael to Sheriff Brackett in the film. Um, and I think I might have mentioned that before, but like I said, that's one of my favorite monologues. So Loomis really has all the best lines in the film, except for Brackett, because one of the main themes of the film is uh, everyone's entitled to one good scare, which has now come back in Halloween Kills when he reprises his role. Excuse me, Laurie. Oh, Mr. Brackett, I'm sorry, Mr. Brackett. Oh, I didn't mean to startle you. That's all right. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Deborah Hill had also stated that the scene where Michael kills the Wallace's German Shepherd in the backyard was done to really illustrate just how really evil and deadly that he is. So um, another person had said that Michael Myers is a cipher. He's nobody, but he could also be anybody. And uh, he's this force of nature as opposed to a human being. Um, and uh, what, wh when we get to the end of the film, there's this ending scene where Michael is like shot six times. And then he disappears after falling off of a balcony. Um, and it was meant to make the audience's imaginations run wild. It was always confusing to me, like, where did he go? He got shot so many times. But Carpenter tried to keep the audience guessing as to who Michael Myers really is. Is he, you know, he is gone and everywhere at the same time. He's more than human. He may be supernatural and no one knows how, you know, he got that way. But Carpenter... Keeping the audience guessing was better than explaining away the character with he's cursed by, you know, someone or something. And Carpenter has described Halloween saying that it's, you know, this true crass exploitation. And he had decided to make a film that he would have loved to see as a kid full of cheap tricks, like a haunted house at a fair where you walk down the corridor and things jump out at you. And I thought it was just really great it's it's something that um sticks with me and maybe that's part of why i really love it so much but john carpenter um he then served as executive producer as uh and the creative consultant for the 2018 sequel to halloween um and then expressed uh his disagreement with rob zombie's portrayal of the character so carpenter had said that i thought that he took away the mystique of the story by explaining too much about michael myers I don't care about that. He's supposed to be a force of nature. He's supposed to be almost supernatural. Yeah, I, I, I thought that. I thought that. Um, like one of the the scariest things is like is like I think that like Loomis's Loomis as a character is really important. Um, and I because you you have no like he fills in all the gaps as to why he's so evil and stuff. But one interesting thing about Myers is that he doesn't come from like your typical. Uh, source this is even makes him scarier is that there's no reason why he he did it i think that you could probably make an argument that that, that it's maybe there's some kind of like sexualized horror going on because his sister i believe i i just watched the scene and his sister is messing around with a guy before he goes up and kills her or whatever right inside of the house 
so it's it's almost like it's almost like jason with like you know the, the camp counselors are off having sex and therefore i drowned kind of thing but it's not really because there's nothing that befalls him that's bad it's just he goes up there and murders her and it's terrifying because you're like there's no indication whatsoever about the abuse and stuff that happens uh which is very scary to me i know we can say now like it didn't exist then these things didn't exist then but with all of the knowledge that we have now of horror films we're like oh well they were breaking the rules yeah right? exactly yeah <laughs> they're having sex they? <laughs> <laughs> so like to us we're just like oh yeah they were breaking the rules so you know that's like once we got to 1996 we knew what they were <laughs> but um <laughs> um the question i had for both of you was um what were your first impressions of when you saw the shape the first time that you watched halloween um i honestly got the chills and like i'm getting the chills thinking about the chills that i got the first time that i saw him um <laughs> i i just remember looking at my friend and being like that is so creepy like you know white usually like symbolizes you know purity and cleanliness and stuff and it's like how how could this white mask be on this person that's seen as so evil and you know and so i just it ooh it was the white made michael featureless faceless and just like you know we've been saying a shape and it had the color of purity which it it wasn't and so i remember just looking at my friend like that is so creepy i loved it obviously but um and i have a michael myers mask behind me in my office um but being young too you see that and you're like that is so creepy i think the scene for me that sticks out really is the first time um and the score really lends to this in jamie lee curtis's performance as well as when you see michael um in the backyard behind yes. the the clothesline yes and that's like their real first like you know that someone's stalking them but that's your first real indication of like where he set his sights i guess you'd say but um i think that like the first scene that i ever saw like when i first actually saw michael myers i think it was the it, it was it like when you actually see him in the mask and i think i put that in the tweet too where you're like what's the scariest scene it's the one where he's standing behind the bush one stay time two it's you don't really know he doesn't give you anything he doesn't give you anything to be afraid of other than he's just looking at you and he's got a mask and overalls on and it's just blank and that's i think my first my first reaction was kind of like like curiosity like you're like huh huh what is that it's it's Lori's it's Lori's reaction right which is scary because you know you should be afraid of this guy, but you're not. You're kind of put off put by it, which is kind of the scary thing, you know, that you should be afraid of this guy and you should not go and charge behind the bush to confront the creepy guy in the mask. And thank God I don't have a daughter that I would ever have to be worried about in that kind of situation. But you know what I mean? But it's 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 scary. <laughs> that That's the scary part about him. Yeah, I like that scene a lot as well. And then Annie goes charging behind the bush. Oh, Lori, he wants to talk to you. <laughs> Just like, fuck off, Annie. Um, which she, I think she does tell Annie in not so many words because it's Lori Strode to fuck off. 
Um, <laughs> so the history of the mask, this is a good moment to talk about that. So in the documentary Halloween Unmasked that came out in 2000, it is revealed that Michael almost had an entirely different mask. So the first mask considered was an Emmett Kelly clown mask that the crew had put frizzy red hair on. And ultimately, it was decided that the mask did not have the creepy and unsettling atmosphere that they were looking for. So the second mask considered was a modified James T. Kirk mask that had the eyes opened up and the skin painted white. And after modification, this mask really captured that emotionless look that they wanted. So thank you, William Shatner, for having the most terrifying face um, in the entire world. I'm sure he'll take credit for it in some way. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, there's a new series on Shudder called Behind the Monsters that I highly recommend any horror fan. And the first episode explores Michael Myers. It was really interesting to watch because it talks about Michael Myers and it really it starts with the origin and the you know, the genesis of Michael and the shape as as the shape. And then it moves through the whole entire series of films. Up through Halloween Kills. This this the series came out like afterward, and I think that um, this may be a Blumhouse series, so it makes sense um, that that is captured in there as well. And there's a lot of great commentary from different podcasters and filmmakers and just folks in Hollywood, screenwriters and things like that, and big fans of the franchise. So we're going to briefly touch on the franchise as a whole here, and just bear with me. So um, because... And I'll tell you why. So the reason is because of what um, Carpenter had said about the Rob Zombie films. So going back to I don't care about that. He's supposed to be a force of nature. He's supposed to be almost supernatural. He wanted to keep the audience guessing. Um, and it's better than explaining away the, away the character with he's cursed by someone or something. Right. Because when we get to the franchise and we get to this Thorn trilogy and then we get to part six of the franchise um at this point uh that whole thing has been erased like uh it's the curse of michael myers and it totally subverts that intention that carpenter had and it seems that horror audiences agree with this submission as one of the worst in the franchise with resurrection geef's favorite (laughs) and part five the revenge of mark michael myers um not far from claiming the worst awards so um Okay. His favorite film. This is Geef's favorite film, Halloween Resurrection. Explains or a lot. just the only Explain, Halloween film that he's ever seen. <laughs> so uh how would you rank the subsequent sequels for this this franchise? You know, which do you think is the best and the worst in the franchise since 1978? So I've seen every single one. I've I, I think recently I went on to a binge of just trying to watch horror franchises and stuff. And yes, I'm going to list that as I have seen it and feel special about it. Just like, you know, saying something like saying something like I. I what's the I, I feel accomplished. I absolutely feel accomplished. Like I sat through I sat through Hellraiser nine and I I I still need like like a Peabody Award for that or something like that. I actually watched that entire movie. But anyways. Uh, so I, I think that like, I think Halloween two kind of worked. Halloween, I like, let's the Halloween three is like, 
Carpenter didn't want to do it, it, it but it doesn't. Yeah, I think it, I think it kind of worked, and I think it was kind of more of of good. But he, I think he kept it close to like where it was, right? It was just more of the night that he came back, which is great. I yes, except that in that one, that is where we get the through line of Michael Myers having some yeah. kind of motivation in Halloween Two with oh shit, Laurie Strode's yeah. his sister. Yeah. What the, that... okay. And that is really how that three line was born and why fans wanted Michael to be in the third yeah. one. And then come I, back, I, so. I think that I think it sort of worked. I think that everything else after that on the original timeline is just, okay, whatever, just, you know, get rid of it. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's one of those things where unfortunately a horror uh, franchise falls into, we have to make all of these remakes, which is how we ended up with something like, like nightmare now true part two or, or, or number two, which was really bad and all that kind of stuff. But I actually, like, I think for me, I, and I don't know if this is just pure nostalgia talking, I really liked Halloween 3. Like, I loved Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. The start of the intended anthology yeah. series. Deborah Hill and Carpenter came back yeah. to, to do that and tell different stories about Sam Hain. I, it so, worked, yeah, I gotta agree with you there. It, it worked for me. I enjoyed it. And I loved that in the new movies, they paid, they paid tribute to it in, in a lot of ways, right? Like there's, you see the masks and all this kind of stuff. Best thing about Halloween Kills, the callbacks to Halloween Three. <laughs> <laughs> At the playground, and you're just like, okay, this is good. I thought the Rob Zombie one. The only thing I didn't like about the Rob Zombie one is that it didn't make him a blank slate. But I, I always thought that Rob Zombie, uh, his, I thought his interpretation of it was fine. I don't, I don't knock him for for trying to fill out some of that. Um, I don't, but I don't think you should look at it. I think you should look at it as kind of like a here's a here's a remix of what Halloween could have been, you know. Um, but uh, I, I do appreciate the newer ones, except you know maybe the last one that they just released was kind of weird. But we'll see how it goes. Um, hopefully they can pick it back up. But I thought how the new, ends. yeah, how it ends, <laughs> how 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 it ends is Michael Myers finally gonna die. You know, like, I mean, is that actually going to happen? Apparently that they allude that they Maybe know there how. there will be a nuclear missile from space. It, I mean, nothing short of that seems to kill the man. So, um, but the franchise as a whole, I think, is is good. Uh, the 90s stuff, the 90s and like that later, the later 80s stuff that they came out with. No, but I, I think that it just shows how much the idea resonates and how good that idea is and that it's one of these things too that you don't it's it's a lesson for for writers out there too don't say too much don't give away the ending you know if if you tell everybody all that you know eventually at some point they're they're going to get bored of it right you want to leave them always wanting more and stuff like that which is okay to say no yeah like think about it plan potential scenarios or just concepts, but don't, you don't have to spell it all out. But Ashley, how about you? Do you have a favorite in the franchise? And this is anything following the first film. So a favorite um, from two onward in the franchise and one that is sort of the worst in your mind. Oh, God. Um, I, God, I just wish they would have stopped. You know, I just wish they would have just stopped with the first one like it was kind of intended. I actually didn't mind. Oh, my gosh. Am I going to? Um, I hope I don't get shit for this. No, it's okay. I probably will. It's fine. Um, I liked Halloween H2O. I liked it. I thought it was okay. A lot of people liked H2O. It was actually a really strong 
sort of reboot right. or ending. It was the original right. Halloween ends of the franchise. Right. Right. I liked it. I really did. Because um, Michael dies. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So. Lori uh, dies. Yeah. Doesn't Lori die at the beginning? No, no, no. Not not at that one. She dies in resurrection yeah. when they have That's to right. bring him back again. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, yeah, I liked Halloween. It just had like, I don't know. I just had those vibes that at that time was like, I freaking love this. Um, And then I liked Halloween 3. Y'all talked about Halloween 3 with the masks and stuff. Like, I thought that was really cool. I like how it dove kind of um into sam sam hain right is my saying that correctly um ha- yeah halloween um which i love halloween you know as a holiday within itself so that was really just interesting um and then i was actually on a um another podcast and we talked about rob zombies halloween and to be fair when i saw that rob had done it i was like i'm not i'm not watching it I'm not doing it. I'm refused because I, I'm just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be honest. Like it's just not my favorite. Rob is just not my favorite. His his vibes and thing it's just not my favorite. But I loved it. I really did. Um I didn't mind it. Um so those those are the ones I would say um that I enjoyed. And then yeah, I just like I said, I wish they would have just stayed on the first one and that just would we'll consider every other film the one you hate the most uh yeah <laughs> i mean honestly I, um, honestly no I, I speaking to that though i gotta say like i had the same reaction with the rob zombie reimaginings of halloween because it just halloween is such a major kind of pivotal film for me in my horror quest if you will so i absolutely hated them the first time i watched them i saw them of course i contributed to that big box office weekend because i had to as a halloween fan um but when i revisited them because i did watch them again because i always like to give a film another go unless it's really 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 fucking horrible um i watched them again and i actually setting them apart from halloween um like John Carpenter's Halloween, I I enjoyed them much more the second time through. I still don't like the backstory threadline with Michael, but I could appreciate them for what they were. And the only other thing that I want to say about the franchise is rest in peace to Laurie Strode's Lost Children. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I actually, lo- like, I love uh, Daniel Har- Harris. Um, so Danny, um, we miss you. And that's a story yeah. Laurie Strode's original child. Mm-hmm. And then what what's up? I don't remember who Josh Hartnett played. I don't remember the name of Laurie Strode's son. <laughs> but um maybe it was Zach or something. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, so I that's like in the original in Halloween H2O, like Michael uh Laurie and him have this like quick, interesting, touching moment, like of brother sister connection, and then she chops his fucking head off with an axe so <laughs> that's how halloween ends <laughs> it was the 80s you know family just it was messed up times yeah yeah well it wasn't the 80s well, anymore. No, no, i know i know they're children they were yeah. children of the yeah. 70s maybe it came out in 2000 right when? that was part of the reason other than the 20 years later was the 2000 thing part of why it was called h2o i think it came out in you guys know when it came out? Halloween H two O. Nineteen ninety eight. Okay, it was the nineties. Yeah, 
Okay. So yeah, I was expecting a lot more water. I mean, that's why it had that same kind of um lighting as like the scream and stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> like Dawson's Creek. I think Kevin Williamson might have been involved, actually. I'd have to look that up though. I think uh, I think one thing where I don't like the sequels in, in some ways is that you lose Carpenter, right? Like you lose him as a director. And absolutely. Like th that's one of the things. It's like I think that you know, we can talk about the character and we can talk about the storylines and all that kind of stuff. But the one thing you never really can carry through is is Carpenter's direction. Because he's just so damn good at lighting a scene. He's he makes it like if you go back and you watch the original Halloween, like the, the daytime is like, okay, there's not much he can do. But man, his use and he does this in the thing. Uh he did it in Assault and Precinct 13. His use of floodlights to light up areas is just incredible like the way that he can picture make a building look just sinister by just placing a few sources light sources around and the way he does that makes makes the makes michael pop out of the out of everything right like it it is just like his use of shadow his use of silhouette the way he the way he portrays where the character is you lose that in the other movies and i think that that's one key thing as to why Michael Myers and and John Carpenter are so well connected that I don't think a lot of people can replicate, right? Like his style just fits that blank slate character. Um, um, let you see and make up what it is that is evil about him uh, in all of those movies. Yeah, that's definitely very true. But you know, because we didn't get Carpenter, we got other things like The Fog and Escape from New York True. and The Thing and Christine True. and Prince of Darkness and They Live <laughs> um, and Vampires in 1998. Yeah. We got Vampires instead of Halloween H2O from Carpenter. <laughs> so, I'll take them all. Um, it's all really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about Halloween 1978. Most of us have probably seen it, so we're not going to do a full plot walkthrough, but I am going to highlight a couple scenes. Dr. Loomis arrives in Haddonfield and discovers Michael has stolen his sister Judith's grave from the cemetery. And uh, he also joins forces with the town sheriff, Sheriff Brackett, Annie's father, and they both begin searching the town for Michael. But before that happens, there's actually a scene that I really like. This is when the girls are driving um, to the babysitting jobs and the there's an alarm going off at a local store and they pull up and Annie starts to talk to her dad this is after they were smoking dope in the car <laughs> and um yeah <laughs> and um both. yeah in that moment um when she's like what's going on you know and then he tells her th about the things that were stolen from inside the store and it's the things that michael takes um because it was michael that broke in and you have to really be paying attention and maybe watch it uh, several times to put two and two together um because it's like a mask and a, and a butcher's knife or whatever and then at that same moment, once the girls drive off, that's when Loomis, like, kind of runs up and starts talking to the sheriff to tell him about this Michael Myers guy. So it's sort of, it, it's like a weird meet cute where they just miss each other, like the, the, the girls and Loomis and, and this whole thing. Why are, these, why are these girls so oblivious to the danger around them? Like, that's one of the things that, that strikes me in the movie. I honestly think it's like, because it's the 70s. People think they're safe. They don't lock their doors. It really reminds me of John Walsh, who I think hosts America's Most Wanted and what happened to his family um, around that time period, I think, in the 1980s. 
the shattered innocence of uh, of of the idyllic American suburb and all that, all that. So, which I don't I don't know if that had ever been done before. That that would be kind of interesting to know. I coming from a small town because I'm from one of those like small towns, um, and Haddonfield was actually based off like Deborah's hometown, I think too. Um, Deborah Hill. Um, coming from a small town. I do remember at one point growing up where we didn't lock the front door. We we didn't. We we did feel safe. Oh, yeah, so I think I think they really wanted to highlight that obliviousness, if that's even a word, whatever. The obliviousness of the girls to show just what this town was like. I think that's what it was but i absolutely agree like now i would never i i'm gonna lock my front door no matter where i'm at you know um but i think also at that time too you know i think they really wanted to like the people felt safe here they felt like nothing bad was gonna happen they felt like they could do whatever they wanted they could walk home from school by themselves they could you know yada 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 um so i think they did a really good job of highlighting that yeah, I guess it's also, it's like the Midwest, a small town Midwest kind of right um, scenario. But it, like then when I think about it and we get to films like A Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984, we were locking our doors. That's true. So it didn't take long. Yeah. This I, th- I think that this is, it's, it maybe it signifies a transition from like the, the old uh, we can do everything. And I remember, I remember like, you know, stuff you could just, you, you could go out you could go down the street and hang out as a kid. Like oh, now, yeah. Nowadays, like people call the too. police when they see unattended children. Like yeah. I, I remember running around. I, my parents were never home. Yeah. We, when we were living in my grandmother's like trailer uh, back in the day for a short period of time. We run around. We ran around that neighborhood constantly. There were no adults around. The door was always unlocked because we had to get in and out. You didn't give your kids keys back then nope no you you came and came and came and went as you as you felt like you needed to you you could stay out like we i i maybe this is maybe poor parenting but we'd ride our bikes around until like you know late at night it's like if the lights started to come on then it was like okay you could come home but we used to do like we would go far and and wide and now it's like now it's like if here's another reason not to be a parent it's like you are you are literally the armed escort for your child until they hit 18. Like you have to be or else you get hauled in front of like child services or something like that. Like it's actually I actually feel sorry for parents nowadays because it's like you are constantly monitoring where these kids are. You have to. And it was like the freedom that we had back then. And it's kind of interesting that it's like counter it's it's not to reality because all those crimes and stuff are down. Like violent crime is way, way, way down comparatively, but you know, I don't know. That's another discussion. I was going to say like my friend that I used to watch the movies with, like lived a mile away. Like our neighborhood was huge. So like lived on the complete other side of the neighborhood. I used to have to drive my go-kart and ride my bike to go to her house. And I mean, you're right. As soon as the street lights came on, that's when we were like going back inside, you know, after playing outside, being by ourselves all day. I don't even like, 
understand why my parents let me go do half of the crap that I did walking in the forest and driving the go-kart across the neighborhood, you know, but like, that's what we used to do. And then I just, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously it was a lot of fun, but like, I would never, I don't know if I would ever let my, I don't have kids, but like, I don't know if I'd ever let them do that. Like that freaks me out just thinking about it, you know? So, but I just wanted to point out that absolutely I did the same thing. Like watching these horror movies, I still drove my go-kart, you know, across the neighborhood to go to my friend's house. So, yeah. Oh, I'm remembering now. I was going to say we were like the Stranger Things kids, but without the. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Aliens and the, the horror and stuff. But it's like, that's why that series is so nostalgic for me, because it feels just like when I was a kid running around with my friends on the neighborhood and stuff. So. So Annie gets a call from her boyfriend, Paul, which is actually voiced by John Carpenter in the film. And decides to go uh, pick Paul up. So Annie then takes Lindsay over to Tommy's house. She says, like, how would you like it if I could arrange for you to hang out with Tommy Doyle? <laughs> so, um, And um, Lori agrees. And so then she returns to the Wallace house. And when she gets in the car to leave, Michael ambushes Annie from the back seat and strangles her before slitting her throat with the chef's knife. And so this was interesting because the the killers in the backseat of the car trope, I don't know how often it had been used prior prior to this, um, but that one always sticks with me. Like when I see that trope now, I always think about that scene in Halloween. Absolutely. And that one is like, that kill is probably my least favorite in the sense that it scares me the most because now, oh, I mean like, I do it. I I check the back seat when I get in my car. And like even on my car when I'm getting in, it tells me to check the back seat, which is so so scary in a way. But that is my least favorite kill in the fact that it feels the most scary to me. Um, Wait, how does your how does your car tell you to check the back seat? I'm assuming because there's weight back there like if I have my purse back there or oh. It it feels the weight in the seat, and it tells me to check my back seat. I know, I know. It kind of freaked me out when this I first saw it. Very smart car. <laughs> yeah, that's a scare. That actually, it's interesting because if, if I have any weight in my uh, passenger seat, it tells me something similar. Right, like if the seat <laughs> isn't tilted, but I don't have it for my ba- the back of my car. Oh, yeah, I have it. Funny. Yeah. Back at the Doyle house, um, Tommy witnesses Michael carrying Annie's corpse into the Wallace residence. And he tries to tell Lori, but she dismisses she dismisses it, and she is like, "Okay, that's enough. Uh, Tommy and Lindsay can go to bed." And this is where he's like, "The boogeyman, the boogeyman, okay. the boogeyman," right? But um, I think earlier too, when the kids are there together, um, while all this Annie stuff is going on, she's like walking back and forth, and like Lori's getting phone calls and stuff from uh, Linda later on when she gets there. Um, I know there is, I want to reference the science fiction film that, that Carpenter was playing in the background, um, in death. It's it the thing. Like you might know what it it's is. It's the thing. It's the, it's the actual 50, I think it's the 51 yes, it's the version thing of the from thing. from another world. Yeah. Yes. And I always thought that was so cool. It's actually a fantastic film. So if you haven't seen it, go watch a thing from an, another world. I watched it before we did the, the discussion on the thing for the podcast um it's the same it's the same font not typography i guess i don't know it's font that he not 
it's it, it looks like just his movie yeah, he's going to make card. like it's a it's a it's what six years ahead of time that, that he's like here's the thing and you're like oh my god that's pretty cool like you don't realize it in the moment obviously but you know, or you wouldn't have realized it in the moment if you're back in 1978 but it's really cool it's there it's very cool to pick up on now yeah um so yeah this kind of jumps ahead a little bit but soon after she's like you can go to bed so i think that tommy and Lindsay go upstairs um to at least get ready for bed can i say something about tommy yeah (laughs) like he literally sees him carrying a body but then he's just like okay i'll just go to bed i don't know okay anyways no he does struggle a little bit he struggles a little bit but he gives it up listen to me pay attention to me he gives it up a little too quick tommy does but he's still even once he's like in his pajamas and all that stuff he still freaks the fuck out i remember but you should tommy assert yourself buddy you'll be all right <laughs> well, he's a kid that gets bullied, so I think he just has an easier time just kind of giving up this is true. um on in, in those situations where he feels he doesn't have any power. But that's like going really deep on his psychology. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like no. he's like, Do I want um, the babysitter to be mad at me or the guy that's carrying the body to be mad at me? Which uh, one should I get mad? Which one would well, I prefer? So at least he's across the street, so we'll just won't worry about it for now. So um, soon after, Linda and her boyfriend, Bob, uh, arrive at the dark and empty Wallace house, planning on surprising and scaring Annie. So upon entrance, because obviously the door's unlocked, they find Annie and Lindsay not there. So they go upstairs and they have sex and they take, um, I think, yeah, it's just, is that, that's just like a thing in the 70s. You just, what you would walk into some other person's house and just have sex in their bed. Yeah, I think that was a. <laughs> Which is really weird because um, it's like I don't wouldn't want to be around somebody else. Never mind. Okay, that's that's gross. You know, why would you <laughs> want to be in somebody else's bed having sex? It's disgusting. Like a total stranger. Um. So, yeah. <laughs> but so afterwards, um, Linda is filing her nails, and she t- she uh, nudges Bob. I I know this scene really well because it's one of my favorites. Uh, sequence of scenes so um she nudges bob and tells him to go get her a beer (laughs) and um so bob goes downstairs to get a beer and is suddenly grabbed by michael slammed against the wall and stabbed through the chest with a knife pinning him to the wall which is the most um interesting in terms of kills because gravity so um i just (laughs) i don't think that knife could hold him up but uh, Michael then dons a sheet and Bob's glasses and goes upstairs into the bedroom uh, with Linda. And she says one of my favorite lines, can I get your ghost, Bob? Um, and then uh, proceeds to strip and there's no reaction, of course. <laughs> so um, uh, Linda, believing that it's Bob, jokes with him for a second, then gets irritated and she tries to call Lori and just as Lori picks up, Michael wraps the phone cord around Linda's neck and strangles her to death. And Lori just hears Linda gasping and squealing and feeling unsettled, makes sure the kids are asleep and goes over to the Wallace residence to investigate. Um, and th- I, ha- I actually have um, a little figurine of Bob the ghost. <laughs> so this is this is a bit this seems a big one for me. I was just going to say a random fact that I'm actually most likely going to get that tattooed on me. Um, Ghost Michael. Um, I love that scene, too. Bob. Yeah. yeah Bob. I like it. I, I think I should just get Can I Get Your Ghost Bob tattooed. I love it. That's that's another scene 
it feels familiar because, you know, you're there with your, you know, partner, your significant other. And like, you just feel like untouchable in that moment, I guess. And besides like, they literally went in someone's house and went into their bedroom and had sex, you know, like they, I'm sure they felt untouchable in that moment. And so you think that that's your loved one and you have your guard completely down. Um, and he, Michael takes advantage of that. And I just, I, I like that scene as well. I think like, I think like the scene with the ghost and the head, the headstone are kind of like, I think it's, I don't want to say like it's out of character, but it's like, how do I say this? It's like, oh, obviously it's Michael Myers, right? But it's like, these are the only glimpses you get of his personality in the whole thing. Aside from the the head tilt, which I think yeah, Nick did w without being directed, that to me is just like this weird iconic moment of just like admiring his work. Yeah. You know? Or even that, like, um, it's almost animalistic, right? Like a way a dog looks at you and it tilts its head. You're just sitting there going like, it's just wondering. And it's just like, it's still- Defiantly pees on your rug. Something yeah like that, and it's just where you say something to it and it's just like you're a curiosity or something even more out of it it's like that feels but like the the headstone i guess because he has a history the, the the ghost has always been this like weird thing for me because it feels like it's the most out of character but i don't know why it's my favorite i i, I don't know i i can't i can't explain why it resonates with people and at the same time i can't explain why it doesn't resonate with me because i, I sit back and i go if he was just say like a shadow in the door and she was like looking and going, are you going to bring me the beer? Are you just going to stand there or something like that? As opposed to just being like a ghost or maybe they couldn't do the lighting right. Maybe that was the original intention, but it's like, I assume so. I will have to see if we can find a fact. And the reason is that it's the only moment where he ever does anything that is just like almost comedic. So out of character it's comedic. Yeah. And also he's, he's hiding his identity briefly or, thinking outside the box about how he's gonna kill someone like he also doesn't use a knife uh to kill mm -hmm. linda um where i think he pretty much uses a knife the rest of the time so um it's just really interesting it's just, it's the most oddball moment for sure yeah we do have to at least mention the body count and it was six in halloween so Halloween has the lowest body count out of all of its sequels that would follow in true horror sequel fashion because they've always got to one-up the original, right? So with that, um, we've come to a very important part of our discussion, which is to say that this film is rated 96% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And I want to know how you would rate the film. So you have five bloody knives that you can rate this film experience with and I think for Halloween, I, there's, it's like five for me, and I can never not have it be five. So, um, and I've talked a lot about all my reasons. So. Yeah, I'm gonna agree with you, absolutely. Five bloody knives. I'd have to go five bloody knives as well. Side, can I do bloody sides? Can I do that? Bloody thighs. No, side sides. Sides. Can I can I use uh five bloody sides? I will allow it for you death excellent thank you 
<laughs> You're welcome. So we all rate this film pretty highly. There was really never any doubt, honestly. <laughs> and uh, Death and Ashleena, thank you so much for being here today to talk about Halloween with me. And I hope you will come back again and talk about another horror film in the future. Uh, oh, I'd yeah? love to. Love to. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having us and for letting us. I mean, honestly, when you approached me and you said, this is what we're going to talk about. This is the film. I was like, yep. Thank you. Like, I feel I feel so special and so honored because it is my favorite movie. And uh, yeah, no, I thank you. Thank you for having us. And thank you. I remember. Yes, I know I that on you. That too. Like you remembered. <laughs> like, that was really cool. Little thing. Thank I you did from our other conversation. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, well, thanks again. And that's it. Uh, Slayers. We'll catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>